Big on Kubernetes community live stream number 148, Doc Talks, going a little bit forward, going back to the future, doing a little bit of this, doing a little bit of that. This has been built up with extra anticipation for our guests today. But before we get to that, just want to give a quick reminder. We've got DOK Day coming up on October 24th. If you're going to be in Detroit for KubeCon or if you want to attend online, you have all the information, the link that I've shared here in the chat. Um, so definitely check that out. We, we will be hosting up to 150 people in person. We've already got about 50% of our tickets sold for the in-person part. And online, all you have to do is add it to your KubeCon schedule as a co-located event. Got over 20 talks. We'll also be talking about the second research report that we'll be releasing two weeks before KubeCon. So lots of things will be happening there. Live entertainment, online entertainment, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That being said, you know, our community has been around for two years and today's guest has been around in the Kubernetes community for much longer than that. Chris Love is no stranger to the Kubernetes ecosystem. It's exactly why we have him on today with us. Talk about the specific notion of cost. It's a big deal when people get the their bill from whatever cloud provider or any other services that they might be using on Kubernetes. They want to make sure that they're adopting the right culture regarding cost saving and optimization. That's what Chris is going to be sharing us with us today. He is a published author. He also runs an amazing company called LionCube. But first of all, I just want to get to know him. While he's talking, please feel free to leave your questions in the chat, and we'll get to them uh, later on during the live stream. That being said, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Let me take these headphones off and All right. push my record button on my end as well. Sounds good. Appreciate everybody joining us or re-watching it. I'm going to put my headphones over here. So as, and thank you for the introduction, very too kind. Um, my name is Chris Love, as, um, as Bart mentioned, I'm a published Kubernetes author, also been in the consulting world for about six years now with Kubernetes. But enough about me. And as Bart mentioned, cost is becoming a huge issue. And if you're joining us today, you're primary, you are looking at running big data on top of Kubernetes, or you already are running data stateful applications such as databases, uh, queues, et cetera, uh, on top of Kubernetes. And what we wanted to delve a bit in today is a bit of the basics on cost savings, more about how data impacts cost savings rather than how we, uh, on, rather than how Kubernetes impacts cost savings. So let's talk about data on top of Kubernetes, see if I can um, be explicit on this. And let's see if, there we go. So the problem, why do we move to Kubernetes? Well, we've got lots of different reasons. We're using containers. We're looking at working with microservices, stateless applications, lines, tires, and bears, oh my. But one of the things that Kubernetes out of the box does is it should give us some cost savings. Typically it's around 20 to 30% cost savings on how you do it. You're able to push a button, make stuff smaller, able to push another button, make stuff bigger. And in essence, you should have, if you do a straight migration from say EC2 or GCP instances, or you, know, you move from your data center onto the cloud with Kubernetes, you're going to reduce your overall instance count that you're using. And that just saves money. But what I contend is that folks just aren't, un the, the knowledge isn't out there on really how to save money with Kubernetes. So, so we've migrated, but yet slowly 
you know, cost creeps in. We let cost in the back door because now we, we have a little bit of a black box with Kubernetes. You don't even know where you've deployed your service out to. You know, your deployment gets put on a node. Your pod goes over here, over there. You don't know and have the insight you had previously when you knew, okay, on this EC2 instance, I have this application installed. It can really create a, something that just grows and grows over time. It's easy to add new nodes. It's easy to add new replicas of a service. It's easy to install components into dev and you create 15 replicas when you really need one. And what we're doing now, what, what you know, data on Kubernetes talks about is we're doing big data. We're doing databases, we're doing stateful application. And really if you've been in this industry any amount of time, you understand that databases use just use resources in, in excess. So let's talk about cost waste within, say, uh, AWS. These are all rough numbers, some estimates. Typically, looking at cost waste, we're looking at between 20 and 30 percent. It's an anecdotal number, but if you talk to most folks in the industry, you know they, they give you that number. And as I mentioned. We're going to specify Amazon Web Services. Within Amazon itself, it's theorized that it's anywhere from a 78, 80, maybe a $100 billion company. So if we take that number and then we look at 20 to 30% of that, AWS clients alone are spending in excess of 15 to 20, maybe $30 billion a year in just cost waste. You know, what, what I always say is that engineers, um, and I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus here instead of throwing all engineers. I stink at shutting off the lights. When I leave a room, I'll forget, forget to switch, flip off that light switch. If we talk about leaving a cluster up and running, leave, installing something and not resizing your cluster after you've removed it, we just aren't great at it. And Kubernetes is, you know, it's just part of the cost. It's growing fast your instances typically get larger and larger and larger. Some of our large clients are running instances that have, you know, 32, 64 processors with, you know, 256 gigabytes or 512 gigabytes of RAM, and you're over hundred nodes. You just do the math. It's not, it's not inexpensive at times to run this system, especially when we're looking at, you know, Cassandra, Redis, you know, I'm not mentioning those because I, I love them, but it's prevalent in the industry. Even your Postgres databases, they're gonna they're gonna start costing you real money. And as I mentioned, Kubernetes kind of sets up a mask around everything. It adds a layer of invisibility and complexity where it doesn't easily give you external access. You're not able to pull up a dashboard and say, "Hey, here's my cost." You know, Google may provide you some numbers, but it's it's a little fuzzy. Even more than that, you're not able to really get under the hood and get the numbers and the analytics and the data you, data you want in order to tune applications easily. And as it grows, you know, we can't, we can't see the cluster, but guess what? At the end of the month, somebody gets that bill. Somebody either is looking at acquisition of new hardware, if you're in a data center, your, your node pool suddenly grew from 20 nodes to 30 nodes, you suddenly needed bigger nodes because you want to keep your node count smaller. And in today's economy, you know, a couple of years ago, 
you know, I would say that we really didn't care about the money that was being spent at the level that we're carrying now. People are getting laid off, unfortunately, and engineering groups are getting smaller. And it, it becomes more and more important, especially with what's going on um, economically within our, within worldwide right now, that we want to start looking at saving even more money. So data is expensive. And if you've worked with Hadoop cluster, you've been able to see it just growing. You get a, just a new data source, you're bringing it in, and it just explodes. What, what I hypothesize is it's like adding fuel to the fire. It's really steroids for cost. And several components of data can make cross uh, costs grow and spread like wildfire. So node size, as I mentioned, uh, running data on Kubernetes often takes a lot of CPU. It takes a lot of memory. It takes, you know, 10 CPUs, 20 CPUs, for instance. And if not, you know, terabytes of memory. So what we want to look at, you know, in terms of node sizing is getting the node sizing correct. Admittedly, a little bit of a black art unless you don't have the data. Still black art if you do have the data, meaning... It's not really prevalent. Okay, we've got this workload. This is really the size that we should be running. You know, more and more that data and that knowledge is getting out there. Secondly, you want to look at uh, creating node pools of specific nodes of larger sizes and running your data applications on them. And you can target it with, with technology. I'm not going to go into detail how you do that at a technical level. Lots of good blog posts out there. Uh, on how to set memory limits, how to create uh, specific node groups of instance sizes and target workloads to them. I'm not gonna really do that. I'm gonna go over the high level concepts, things that you wanna think about, and then you can apply them. Storage. Storage is really, storage is one of the big costs within data world. You're often looking at getting really fast SSD type storage where you have a lot of IOPS that in the and persistent limits, but also data grows in size. So you're looking at eventually terabytes, you're looking at possibly petabytes. Every day that costs money, whether you're on the cloud or on bare metal. One of the tricks with storage is looking at, say, running a lower classification of storage. In other words, say you have three storage classes on your, or different storage types on your cloud provider. See if you can select not the highest um, storage type, but the second tier storage type, but give yourself a little bit more IOPS on that. That fine-grained tuning can often save your company a bunch of money. GPUs. So machine learning, artificial intelligence, often needs really special number crunching. GPUs are expensive. Again, don't have GPUs on every node if you have Nginx on that node and you don't even have um, your you know, your artificial intelligence, your machine models being built on that node. Target specific applications to those nodes. So we've got all this data around, so we need a way to reduce costs. What, what I say is, let's flip it. Let's not have data as, the, as how we're getting excess of costs. Let's turn data really into the hero where you can reduce your costs. And Kubernetes does have that data out of the box. We have metric server, which gathers that data. We have etcd, which stores that data. 
But there's a little component within uh, Kublet and installed on every node, which is called C Advisor. C Advisor taps into the container engine stats and provides those stats for you. But we've got a metric server where we can provide the stats and we've got the statistics growing in the system, but yet we still, it's still invisible to us. We still can't see that data easily. So here's the component that layers on top of it. This is an open source project. It was, open cost was created not to be a costing tool, but to be an API layer, as well as creating a standard where companies are able to say, all right, this is the efficiency, this is the, the CPU percentage that's being used, this is the cost. And it's for DevOps and engineering teams, and it provides you that visibility back. Some supporters of it. Uh, we've got Adobe, KubeCost, AWS, Google Cloud, New Relic, some very, very large teams that are supporting this project. And it really provides you a standardized manner to collect this. It's a CNN CF sandbox project. If you're not familiar with the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, they're the folks that Kubernetes falls under. They're a nonprofit organization uh, that's associated with the Linux Foundation. So really my, my point is, is that OpenCost isn't some uh, random project that was started by three or four people. It has large companies behind it. It's got, it's a CNCF uh, sandbox project. So it's gonna, it's gonna be around. So as I mentioned, we've got uh, Kubernetes, which has C advisor. And then we've also got the metric server, but now we need to interlock multiple components. Prometheus, pretty much a standard now in terms of collecting data. You've got your cloud provider and then you've got Kubernetes APIs. All of that is tied into the KubeCast uh, deployment. You're, it's reading costing from your, from your um, cloud provider. It's talking to Prometheus to get more of the cost data. And it's talking to the Kubernetes, the Kubernetes API to access the data that's coming off the metric server. All of that flows into KubeCost. From there, you have different metadata in terms of you can drill down into pods, into namespaces. You've got resources that are measured, CPU, memory, more than that. Now, the fun part is you get costing. You've got CPU costs, you've got RAM costs, you've got network costs that can be integrating. And that's one thing I actually didn't cover within the costing section. Network costs also cost a lot of money with data. If you have multiple different instances, say of Cassandra, and that data is replicating across, um, say, different data centers, or regions, or even availability zones within the cloud, you're gonna incur more costs because of that. So KubeCost is really easy to install. You run Helm install my Prometheus, or you know, there's a lot of more options in there. Use Prometheus or get Prometheus installed. You can also uh, tie into an existing Prometheus installation. You then simply apply the OpenCost YAML file which creates the deployment. We're gonna show you something called uh, the cost plugin. 
for Kube Control uses a, a tool called, or it's very easily to install this plugin via a tool called Crew, K-R-E-W. Get Crew up and running on your machine, then you're able to run the following, you know, the Crew command to install uh, the cost plugin. So let's, let me stop my presentation here. See if I can do this properly. And let's take a look at a cluster. Already brought this up this morning. You'll notice that we have Prometheus up and running. We also have, I, I just installed a, an Nginx deployment. And also we have the open cost deployment up and running within the cluster. So I've aliased Kube Control Decay. So you've got open cost running and open cost. There's your pod that's up and running gathering data. And one of the key things is the key things you do need running is metric server and some systems is not default to install metric server, but you need that up and running. So as I mentioned, we're using the Kube Control cost plugin and there's various different options. Um, the site that I had up, the Git on GitHub, they've got different examples. So if you, you can see here, quite a bit to it, different examples, quite a few different flags. Not gonna go through everything. I'll let you guys, you folks read through the documentation. But let me show you an example real quick. So we've got the clusters up and running. We've got monthly rate and we've got cost efficiency. As well as, say you don't just wanna see the summary or all resources, you can run a simple command to just show your memory allocation and your memory efficiency. So the key here is it's all API based. You're able to pull in that data, say into Grafana or another graphing tool that you use and map it out. Very simple to install, very simple to keep on running. You will, the, the pod will grow in size. The pod is, you know, it's doing modeling of your systems. It's not trivial to run. If you've got multiple clusters you're tying into it, very large clusters, you can expect it to run, say, 80 gigs of memory, for instance. So that's the quick and dirty demo of the project. Uh, it's open source, so it's completely free. There's uh, cost does tie into uh, open cost, and they provide a UI in front of it. And there's just several other folks that are working on UIs as well. Wrong button. Let me hit that button. There we go. So roadmap for KubeCos is fairly well laid out, very stable program already. They're looking at integrating the costing model into more clouds. So right now, AWS, GCP, and a couple other cloud providers are, uh, are supported. You're able to provide a spreadsheet with your different instance types 
so that say your own bare metal, you're, it's able to compute those. Really, we the project needs in, more input on what uh, needs to be built for the future. There's a basic UI. We just they just got in a PR uh, request to allow deployment of a very basic UI for it. But again, it's primarily API driven. So using this tool, companies, you know, you move to Kubernetes, you're saving about 20 to 30%. Using this tool, again, you're saving even more money. It's easy, it's easy, unless you've already done costing models within your cluster to save again, another 20 to 30%. Companies often save 50%, um, looking at resizing instance types, looking at tuning and really getting the visibility of what you need to tune. I always go back to 80-20 model, do 80% of, you know, 80% versus 20% of the work, you can get very low hanging fruit with data work. Meaning you're able to tune very easily. So this is all good and pure, but this, there's, a, there's, there's often a tendency when we implement new tooling that you're able to get a UI behind, you get busy and your culture doesn't back up using it. You don't necessarily have the capability, even after you've installed it, to really take the time to do the work that you wanna do with it. I would say that engineers aren't incentivized to actually save money. We get credit for keeping the lights on as well as building applications, keeping pro product folks and client folks happy. We're not necessarily given the either financial incentivization or the awards or what have you within our culture so that we want to even do this. We're really good at keeping stuff up and running, but we don't necessarily focus on something that's you know, right in our face. We don't have like developers and engineers and everybody else doesn't really have the culture typically around them from a company level that they want or they are able to even save money and want to save money. Like I said, the incentives just don't match. But here's the interesting thing. Successful companies don't just mean building and supporting a product. Every successful company has a board of directors, private owners, and they really typically care about bottom line. Some startups, they're not at a place they're more at a place where product's more important. You know, we, we need to get it out the door in order for us to succeed. But once you get established, you enter a period, and even very, very quickly in a startup, I would say, where people are more and more caring about margins and bottom lines. So as I said, going back, we need to look at a shift where engineers get the incentives and get the time to fight costs. Just doing a quick time check here. And you're like, well, Chris, this isn't technology. We're not talking about tech here. We're talking about cost. And, but I, what I would surmise is this is soft skills. Looking at being able to implement this and shifting and influencing culture isn't tech. It's not writing code. What it is, is looking at improving your company and looking at improving yourself. So, as I mentioned, we're having a really uh, challenging economy right now. 
folks, you know, I see on LinkedIn or Twitter almost every week a new companies laying off folks. If you start looking at saving costs, what I, what, I, what I say is instead of laying off engineers, let's start cutting costs and let the engineers focus on cutting costs. And these costs will pay for the engineers to stick around. Also, cutting cost numbers, you know, you often on a resume, you want to put in numbers. You want to put in, okay, I saved the company $500,000 over a period of a year. That looks great. So culture change, I, I won't beat around the bush or I won't understate this. It's hard. You know, you're looking at a revolution almost, a leadership mindset change. Either you look from a bottom-up change or a top-down change. Leadership really needs to write off and make this their primary idea. And either that idea grows from leaders saying, okay, we need to, we need to implement this change to our culture. We have to allow engineers to focus on this. Or the engineers need to come to the management, come to leadership and say, look, this is, this is something we can work on here. We can implement this software. We can implement practices around cost savings. And we can save a lot of money. There's very few experts that can, that can come into your company and really fix this. This is something that a company has to own. Myself, we, we, we talk about the fact we never want to get into culture or politics or anything like that. As, as consultants, we're here to help with the technology. We can have people influence other the organization through the technology, but as consultants, we want to stay out of that. That really needs to be owned by the company itself. I want to go back to really a success story around culture, around cost savings. Amazon has 14 different leadership principles, and one of them is frugality. In other words, being frugal. They don't want to spend the money on things that don't matter. They want to tune and become really self-sufficient on budget, on costs, on managing expenses. They have it where everybody understands how much is being spent on these resources. I would say that more engineers need to understand the bill every month because they'll be like, oh, you know, that's $100,000 a month. Maybe I shouldn't spend that type of money. So from that, we can use the data, we can build a culture, and we can de defeat the cost. And what I want to talk about, or what I want to finish up a bit here is that changing culture is sales. As engineers, we don't necessarily want to hear it but it's relationships. And what I'd say is that we're always selling ourselves. Really, it's developing the relationships and figuring out what people want. And typically nowadays, it's to save some money. And then you're able to provide a solution for that. All you can do is try. Um, they may say no. They may uh, not want to do this. And that's okay. You know, that's, the, that's decisions of leadership within companies. And you know, let, let be. You can always help us out on the project and commit to open source if you're really interested in it, as well as, you know, always reach out to me. I'm happy to have those conversations about influence culture offline. Talk about my book some. Uh, book title is named Core Kubernetes. It's released by Manning Publishing. Um, been selling really well. Thank you so much. Really, Core Kubernetes isn't about uh, what is a pod what is a stateful set? Here's the YAML. Here are the tweaks you need to do with the YAML. Core Kubernetes goes under the hood. 
So we're talking about IP tables, we're talking about Linux namespaces, we're talking about uh, different security methodologies, networking, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really how Kubernetes is running. Um, Jay Viaz, I'll give, him, I'll give him a lot of praise for the book. He works for VMware, is a contributor to Kubernetes, has been for a long time. I've done some lightweight con contribution, but most of my knowledge comes through that. We're actually, uh, we actually have code from say the scheduler in the book. So we walk through code components for you. Real quickly talk about LionCube. Uh, we assist companies with consulting professional services and other support around Kubernetes, DevOps. Uh, we also do work with data on top of Kubernetes. Uh, we've worked with different company, database companies building on controllers, worked with several large companies uh, doing data work and uh, showing them and working with them to get their databases up and running on top of Kubernetes. All right, I'm gonna put my headphones back on here and see if there's any questions I can answer. Very good. Um, you can hear me right, Chris? I can. Perfect. So awesome presentation, very practical, very hands-on. And like you said, some of these things that come in here are, we look at different stakeholders in an organization, how do you, with cultural building, how do you, you know, make people more aware of these things? Some people say, look, that's not my job, that's a CFO's job, it's the CTO's job. And I saw this in particular um, when I was working at a startup that did a cloud migration to Azure in a very short period of time and did not have the necessary culture in place. And as a result, uh, cloud costs got completely out of control. Mm -hmm. I'd bring somebody on specifically just to work on the optimization, which meant a lot of, hey, just so you know, this is the amount of you know, costs you're generating infrastructure. And a lot of people hadn't, uh, hadn't had that experience yet. And so is, it's, it's something that I've seen firsthand organizations that can be quite tricky. When it comes to, same thing with stakeholders, when we look at, you know, when we talk about running stateful workloads on Kubernetes, we have a sort of, let's say, a dilemma when it comes to who are the, you know, the, the owners of this, who are the stakeholders that are going to be involved? We talk about platform teams, yeah. we talk about SREs, we talk about DevOps. You know, when you've been working with organizations that start to run, you know, that are interested in running, you know, data, um, safe mm -hmm. applications on Kubernetes, how do those conversations start? How do they approach it from a team perspective? What are their doubts? What's the stuff that you've seen firsthand? So let's go first back to ownership. Um, it, it goes to the two typical models from a change standpoint. Either we're looking at uh, we're looking at a model where it's top down or bottom up. In other words, the engineers at the bottom say, we need to install this. We should install this. We should start looking at costs. Can I please have access to the bills? I'd like to see how much we're spending on XYZ cluster. And that'll give, that'll give a really good starting point for those conversations. Kubernetes is a great place to start those conversations as well. It is, you install a tool, you start getting data immediately. And it's a free tool even, uh, several tools out there. And it's really built to collect that data and use it. Second part of the question, um, re really um, what I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bart, is why? Why do yeah. we want to change, right? Is, is that what also what yeah, you're Yeah, because but as, as with any change in organization, we know there's going to be resistance. We know there's going to be sure. doubts. It's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, someone, you know, something that we've even talked about is, could there be a guide provided for folks to say, 
you know, this is this is a script almost that you can use or a template if you want to have this conversation with your boss because of knowing that there's going to be, I don't want to be responsible if something goes wrong. And whether it's data on Kubernetes or whether it's a lot of other things, these these things create friction in organizations. Um, one book, I'll, I'll actually say a book name. I'll, I'll promote a book that's not mine. Um, there's a book by a gentleman named Chris Boss, and he's actually an FBI, former FBI negotiator. You're going, okay, why is Chris recommending this book? Uh, it's because you have to negotiate this. He was a former hostage negotiator. The gentleman knows how to negotiate. Good book, even if you want to learn how to negotiate a better wage. It really gives you some practical tools on how to have this conversation. And they're difficult conversations. People can get heated about this. People can feel like they're getting blamed. You know, if you talk to any CTO, they'll be like, yeah, you know, we got, we got cost control or almost a lot of CPO, CTOs. Let's go there. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, we got cost control under, you know, it's, it's going well. But you start digging the numbers and they're like, oh, crap, didn't realize that. If you talk to any CFO, the song and dance typically changes that, hey, this is a pretty big bill. So I would say look at improving yourself in terms of sales, in terms of listening. And it's really figuring out what the need is. What need does this person, this organization have? And how does cost savings fulfill that need? And it's relationships. People are emotional. They're going to make emotional decisions as much as we say we're logical as engineers. Just ain't true. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think with that in mind, too, is that as much as we're talking about these technical challenges, there's always a very strong human element behind it. And, and so I think that's, that's a really, I think it's a really good point. And one thing, another thing I would say, though, is that so you, like I said, you're no stranger to the Kubernetes ecosystem. And mm -hmm. seeing this development, you know, over time, previously, you know, it seems like uh, up until a couple of years ago, this notion of writing stable workloads on Kubernetes didn't really seem to make that much sense to a lot of people. That, it, but now it seems like there's more of a drive um, yeah. to get uh, to get databases, to get storage, machine learning, all these different kinds of workloads on there. Based on you know your experience, where do you see this going? And and overall for organizations, what's the value that they're going to be extracting from it? So what I'm hearing you say is why to run data on top of Kubernetes. That's absolutely that correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would say you got to know what you're doing. So take it with, make that decision non-lightly. You have to understand two things. First, you have to understand the database that, and data store that you're running on top of Kubernetes very well. And secondly, you need, you have, need to have good understanding of Kubernetes within your organization in order to pull it off. Just because there's a Helm chart for Postgres doesn't mean install a Postgres server when you can offload Postgres to your cloud provider. Just, just do it Do it with, uh, I actually wrote a bit in a GitHub project that I helped publish a while back on Cassandra. And I said, if you don't, you're either, you either know what you're getting into with data on Kubernetes or you're going to figure it out real fast. And that figuring out real fast it can be a, a tad painful. But let me flip that. Kubernetes definitely is ready for data now. We have different projects out there, um, data stacks, Redis, uh, you know, uh, folks over, um, shoot, I'm missing names here today. 
various different cloud providers, or I'm sorry, database providers such as Cockroach, Cassandra, Redis, Postgres, you'll find operators or you'll find capability uh, to have Helm charts to install it or whatever, pick your poison so you don't have as much YAML tool to install Elasticsearch, say on top of Kubernetes. A lot of these data sources started off as I'd call non-cloud native data sources. And what they were, they, were, they ran outside of containers. But more and more data providers are understanding we're gonna be running this inside of a container. container containers are pretty much becoming re really good status, standard. We're gonna to have to run this inside a container so it has to operate inside a container. More and more cloud providers are using internally if they have a SaaS or data providers or if they have a SaaS product, they're actually using Kubernetes to run their products. So it's not only getting used by people outside, uh, you know, it's getting used by people that actually code, for instance, Cockroach database, and they're using Kubernetes to run Cockroach on their SaaS. Right. So, no, no, I hear you. I hear it's you ready. That. It's ready, but you got to know what you're walking into. This is a good point. And regarding, regarding the point, you know, about cost is that I think a lot of folks get into bad situations, but with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, <laughs> Is that, you know, because, and also particularly the nature of a lot of organizations moving at a very fast pace, don't feel like they really, you know, something to heard in companies is we don't want analysis paralysis. And, you know, we've just, mm -hmm. we, it's better to make the wrong decision than no decision at all. With that kind of a mentality, um, what kind of things can, can organizations expect? How can you really drill down and, and anticipate what's the full cost going to be this, A, just in your billing, but also the time it's going to require in terms of monitoring, in terms of the organizational changes mm -hmm. that are going to happen there. You may have money, but you may not have time. How, do, how can organizations balance all those factors? Really good question, but it's a culture shift, right? It's making it important. Mm -hmm. Organizations will focus on what's important. Bottom line, you know, organizations may not know what's important, um, but it's what they're doing. And it's what people within their organization are making important. So how do you get the time? Uh, you've got to be given the time by management. You've got to get it into your project plans that, hey, I'm, I need to reduce some debt here. And tuning an application once you get the data is not rocket science. It's really like, you know, that's why I didn't go through memory and CPU limits. Um, and also there's tools out there. There's various other startups. We're a partner with KubeCost. And you drop in that tool you know, on top of open cost and you get pretty dashboards. You get an API you can tap into that gives you more and more understanding. You know, they, get, they give you automatic recommendations for stuff. And there's other folks out there that are building auto scalers. GCP now has autopilot, which works with really some really good workloads, which is a good option. But yeah, it's re-architecting, it's moving workloads onto say different node pools. It's not time trivial. You just need to be given the time to do that work. Secondly, one thing that I think we missed uh, was you have to have the understanding how to do it. So you're gonna have to come up to speed and do it. Here's the other thing, it needs to be tested. It, for our standpoint, you know, within LineCube is you need to introduce this functionality in CICD. You know, this is the whole functionality of DevOps, right? Well, how do we save time? We put stuff into code that, um, you know, that, that allows for repeatability. Secondly, we are able to test. So why are we installing software into Kubernetes where it doesn't have memory or 
CPU limit set. Just doesn't make sense to me, right? Why are we not looking and why do we not have alerts going off in Slack when my bill increases 30, my network bill increases 30%? No, totally. And I think that th these are these are things that one of the I guess the what we can definitely bet on is that the you know the, these challenges are going to remain in one way or another, and it just is is opening up. And like you said, if it's not prioritized, then then obviously it's never going to it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. What I saw as well too in in this previous organization was the the lack of responsibility regarding cost was also becoming a talent factor of like, oh, if we start pressuring certain employees and limiting their you know, permissions and ability to start spinning up as many machines as they want, then they might say, well, I no longer want to be in this company. I want to move on somewhere where I have more freedom. The, anyway, there are just different factors that have to be balanced out there. Yeah, totally. And you, know, you did mention uh, uh, this book by, by, uh, by a former FBI negotiator, but are there any other resources that companies can leverage in order to build stronger cultures that are more robust? Uh, McKenzie, uh, that's one consulting organization that I could say uh, works with culture uh, because they're so high end. I'm not saying hire McKenzie. <laughs> what I'm saying is there are a lot of good resources on their website, blog posts. Uh, Harvard Business Review has a lot of uh, good, uh, you know, how to influence culture, how to change it. But I would say it's finding champions. I would say it is building relationships around it. And you brought up a really good point that we don't want to have engineers, you know, uh, having nightmares about costs. Hmm. We don't want to have engineers getting unhappy because they are, you know, being called to the floor on too much cost. And that happens, you know, um, CTOs happens a lot to CTOs and that's often you know, they get burned um, by costs and, uh, you know, they're transitioned out of a company. Agreed. Agreed. We don't want to stop innovation. So it's a balance, right? So yeah. tooling will help you. Um, and it really goes back to how much a priority is it, is it? It comes back to getting the right education, getting the tools in place, making it trivial, making it fun. One of the things uh, that I talk about often is make it a game, right? Uh, Napoleon said, uh, and I hope I get this quote right. Yeah, I'm quoting Napoleon here, that people will die for medals. You know, people love ba badges. People love awards. So make it fun for everybody. Make it, make it a game. You know, if you're not doing your job or if you aren't having fun in your job, I would say that you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong job. But it's also important that the leadership takes ownership of that and makes it fun. You know, give accolades. People will do it for accolades. But it goes back to, to what I said previously is don't make it a dungeon of, you know, cost savings. Let's, let's not go overboard where, you know, this is, this is the evil stuff. Let's make it fun. And, but, and let's make it a priority, you know. And, and like you said, I think, you know, both can be done at the same time and that it doesn't mm -hmm. have to feel like you're just being driven to, and, and almost even threatened because um, that creates a very toxic culture of resentment around yeah. that. Um, that's good. All right. Well, last but not least, uh, I'm going to share my screen because as is tradition here in our community, we, while you're giving your presentation, we have our amazing artist who's creating a graphic depiction of what's being discussed. 
So, and as like you said, we need champions. So we have our, our, our cost, cost saving superhero. Um, so it's anyway, so a shout out to Angel, who's always doing an amazing job in the background. And I think this is, you know, this is a topic that we will always be seeing because of the, you know, the, the importance and that, and, and as we're going through the, you know, economic situation that we're going through, whether it's that or not, you know, these things can never be too far off the radar. And I think what's one takeaway for me, there's not one size fits all when it comes to this. There are got to be conversations. It's got to feel organic and natural to the organization. It can't be a forced strategy. And, but if it's not considered to be a priority, it's never going to be on the table. Um, so I think it's, I think it was very, very practical and you seem to be pretty easy to find, but just for folks uh, who maybe arrived a little bit late, if you want to share your socials, anything like that for, for people who want to know more about you or LionCube. Yeah. So I'm pretty much on everything. Uh, Facebook's the only one that's private because that's all family and friends. So it's Chris Love CNM everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's Charlie, Nancy, Michael. So uh, on Best way to reach out to me is either LinkedIn or Twitter. Happy to sit down, have a 15 minute virtual coffee with you and discuss either how to save money within your organization or also discuss how to influence culture and really looking for how does culture have, how does culture change within my organization and how can I influence it? Or do I even want to take that and look at influencing it? stuff well i showed you a twitter link in case folks want to get in touch with you we'll also be sharing the slide so people can take a closer look at that as well and by the way yeah. before we wrap up here that image is great good uh, her, she she did a wonderful job got good. it down to a t so i'll have yep. to post that on twitter today okay cool we'll be sharing that in our slack as well chris it's been great having you with us and look forward to seeing you again